Well, and I invite you to take your Bibles together with me and open them again to John chapter 16. And as we do that, it is with a very clear-eyed awareness that the Christmas season is officially here upon us. And I know that because last week I got an email from a local company here in the area for hanging Christmas lights on my house with the offer of giving me some early bird pricing. (laughs) This week, (laughs) this week I got an email offering late season pricing. So (laughs) apparently the season for hanging Christmas lights lasts all of 48 hours and it has come and gone, which means that Christmas time is here. And with it, We are all now gearing up together to exchange gifts, as most of us will be doing here in just a few weeks. And in my house, that means that everybody's having these whispered secret sidebar conversations about what they're going to be giving to every other member of the family. And certain closets and drawers are off limits because that's where so-and-so hid their stash for everybody else. And and that's all fine and good. And, and, And we do that because we take great joy in offering a good gift to those whom we love. And in John chapter 16, what we find here is Jesus offering a good gift to those whom He loves, to His followers. And see, it's not just any gift, it's really the greatest of gifts, and Jesus really is pretty excited to be able to give this gift here in this chapter. And I know that because he just won't stop talking about this gift that he is offering to his followers. You know, if you go back and read through the upper room discourse, that's John 13 through 16. And I would encourage you to go ahead and do that. It's a good exercise to review. But if you'll do that, what you'll discover is that Jesus has already held up this gift on three separate occasions and talked about it. On three different occasions in these chapters, he has already introduced the topic of the Holy Spirit and his power in your life. But here, as we get into chapter 16, Jesus is really going to unwrap, if you will, the significance of this gift for us. And based upon the fact that he keeps bringing up the person of the Spirit, he is clearly eager for each of us to have access to Him. And the reason for that is because this gift changes everything. Let me show you how that's true. In John chapter 13, for instance, Jesus told us that we must now love as He has loved. Well, on our own, left to our own devices, that is entirely impossible. You and I have no capacity to love as Jesus loved if we do not simultaneously have the empowering work of the Spirit deployed within our lives. You keep reading in the Upper Room Discourse. You get to chapter 14. And there in chapter 14, Jesus told us that now we are responsible to live in Him. Well, that too is impossible if you're not united to Him by the power of the Spirit. You have no capacity for spiritual life apart from Him. That's impossible. And then in chapter 15, Jesus told his disciples that they must be willing to suffer and, if necessary, even die for him. And the disciples look with wide eyes at Jesus and say, how are we supposed to do that? See, that list, the willingness to love like, live in, and die for Jesus is impossible on our own. Those things, they're only possible as we have the empowerment of the Spirit within us. 
And that, that is the gift that Jesus is offering here. See, in this text, he is going to break open the truth of the Holy Spirit and demonstrate to us the value that this gift from him to you has for you. And so it's appropriate, I think, that we would spend the next several weeks here unwrapping and rejoicing in Christ's Christmas gift to us. Let's look together at John chapter 16, beginning in verse 4. We'll pick it up halfway through that verse because that's where we left off last time. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, friends, that right there is the account of Christ as he makes the offer of a great gift to you and to me. A gift that changes absolutely everything about our ability to have a Christian life. And he's eager for us to receive this. You know, as Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 11, If you, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you? And this text, this is the record of the greatest gift. But see, when Jesus first held it out to his disciples, they didn't see it as a very good gift because it wasn't the one that they were looking for. In fact, they, they were downright disappointed by the offer of this gift. And, and that's really where our text picks up here this morning. And, you know, I'm actually grateful that they were disappointed by the offer because their disappointment prompts and provokes Jesus into a chapter-long explanation of why this gift is so significant why it means so much, why it is so powerful. And we are going to be the beneficiaries of that explanation as we move through this chapter together. So let's look and learn together about the greatness of God's gift to us as we start by looking at the disappointment of the disciples. And here in this text, we can see in them a very selfish kind of a fixation. You know, maybe... You, if you're anything like me, can remember being a kid on Christmas morning. You come down the stairs to find there, at least the way I remember it, an absolute mountain of presents. No way was it as big as, as I remember it being, but in my childlike memory, it, it was a big pile of presents. And you think to yourself, here's hoping that, that something in that, in that mountain of gifts and those tightly wrapped packages is really something great for me. After all, I turned in my wish list weeks ago, only to get the first package and find out that it's nothing other than a pair of socks for Christmas. Mom, if you're watching, I'm sorry, nothing against socks for Christmas. But being a kid, that wasn't exactly what I had in mind, right? And so I'm sure that I mumbled, as you probably did if you received socks for Christmas, thanks a lot even as your face betrayed the reality of your soul. <laughs> See, kids can have a really hard time hiding their disappointment because they have no capacity to appreciate the difference between a gift that they need 
socks versus one that they really want. And so the impossibility, it's impossible for them to hide the reality of their disappointment. And that's really kind of what's going on here in this text. Because try as they might, the disciples, they just can't quite seem to hide their disappointment. I mean, three times already in this conversation, back in chapter 14, verse 16, in verse 26, chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus has held up this exquisitely packaged offer of the Spirit and sought to hand it to them. And so far, not a single one of them has risen from their seat to take this gift from Him. And every time He's held out the offer, He's been met with a very uncharacteristic and, dare I say it, rather sullen silence. See, for two whole chapters, the disciples have said nothing. In chapter 13 and 14, they had lots to say. Questions come pouring forth from them. How could you possibly be leaving? And then Jesus talks about the reality of the Spirit coming. And it's at the offer of that Spirit coming that they fall utterly silence. Not so much as a peep for two chapters now running. Now, we don't need the disciples to actually open their mouths to discern their disappointment with the gift that Jesus is offering. Because we can look at what Jesus says. He knows good and well what's going on inside their minds because he knows what's in the heart of every man. And their disappointment is clear here, and, and this is what they're thinking. Something along the lines of, you're going to leave. You just told us that. And you've also told us that when you go, we're probably going to be killed after you've left. So if you leaving is going to be so great, because now we've got this helper, why haven't you been talking about this one for the entirety of your ministry? Why all of a sudden have you dropped this bomb on us now? That's what they're thinking. And even though they haven't asked that question out loud, Jesus, knowing what's in their heart, he goes ahead and answers it anyway. And that's what he says there in the second half of verse 4. I haven't been explaining these things to you, he says, until now, because I was with you. See, they hadn't needed to know about the fullness of the Spirit's ministry because they were in the middle of experiencing the fullness of the Son's ministry. But now he's leaving. And in his absence, the Spirit is going to be the gift that they most need. And so Jesus says here in verse 4, that's the reason why I'm bringing him to your attention now. See, they're desperately going to need him. This is the gift that they need, even if it's not the gift that they wanted. And the reason why they didn't want him is because their focus, their attention is set and fixated completely on themselves and what they think they'll be losing when Jesus leaves. See, they're so focused on themselves and what his departure will mean for them that none of them stops to ask what this departure is going to mean for him. And that's the reason why verse 5 has such an undeniably sad tone of rebuke. Jesus says, now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you stops to ask. None of you bothers to care. None of you asks me, where are you going? See, these men had lots of questions, but none of them were willing to ask the right one. See, and that's the reason why Jesus here in this verse stops them up short and calls, them up and calls upon them to stop being so selfish and to start thinking with some theological muscles. After all, he says here, 
he's going back to the one who sent him. Why haven't any of you asked me about that, Jesus says. Yes, the road before him was going to include the cross, but more importantly, that was not his destination. His destination was the glory of heaven. And that is what he wants these men and us to have our eyes pointed to. And that's really the key here. He was going back to the one who sent him. The day was rapidly approaching when Jesus Christ would step back through the gates of heaven. And when that happened, a chain reaction would occur that had profound impact, not only for him, but also for you and me. See, here's the reality of what happened when Jesus returned to the one who sent him. With the benefit of theological hindsight, we know precisely what happened on the day when Jesus returned to heaven. You see, he he grabbed all the souls of the Old Testament saints out of paradise and he led them in a spectacular parade directly into the throne room of God. And then he took his seat, sat down at the right hand of the Father, having completed the work that was given him to do. And in that moment, the place exploded in a roar of praise with an anthem that is still to this very day pouring forth from the halls of heaven. And as that anthem rang forth, the Father and the Son together sent now their spirit to earth to regenerate, to transform, to indwell, to secure, to preserve, to protect, and to empower every single one of us who had been marked out from before the foundations of time for such a great salvation. That's what happened on the day when Jesus returned to heaven to the one who sent him. And that's what he wants these men to wrap their minds around and to understand. See, this, the news that he's giving to them, this is not bad news. No, this is the best kind of news because it's going to result, you see in the restoration of his place to the fullness of his glory. And that then is going to trigger the event whereby his spirit now comes and indwells you and me and changes everything for us. This message that he's giving to these men and to us, this is not a message of sorrow. No, it's one of tremendous power and privilege both for him and for us. See, this departure Him going, it meant everything to him because it was going to mean everything is now possible for us. Indeed, as Jesus has already told them, he says here in verse 6, Look, because I have said these things to you now, sorrow has filled your heart. See, they should have been jumping up and down for joy at the offer of Christ, at the gift that he's extending to them. What he's giving them is redemption accomplished through himself and applied by his spirit. And their response is one of selfish disappointment. See, their reaction, sorrowful mourning, was the exact opposite of what it should have been. Indeed, Jesus has already told them back in chapter 14, verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will come to you. And if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. See, Jesus, he was really eager to give this gift, but they were not excited to receive it. And instead of mumbling, thanks, a lot, they should have been jumping up and down for joy. 
But they didn't see it as being good enough or in line with what they wanted because all they could see was their own desire for Jesus to stay there with them in the flesh. And the reason they don't understand it is because they don't actually have it. And so the result is that they're acting like someone has just given them the obligatory pair of socks on Christmas. But this gift, this gift is the exact opposite. See, it's the greatest blessing and gift that's ever been granted. And Jesus is not about to let the opportunity pass him by without impressing that truth on these men and on us. See, from here on out in this chapter through the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to pivot now and unpack the glory of the Holy Spirit that he is offering here to us. Now, before we pivot over with him and see the blessing of what's being offered here, I want us to pause the narrative for a moment and connect what we've just heard to our own lives. Because so far, you may be thinking here this morning, what does any of this have to do with me? I I see the way it's playing out in the story, but how does that connect to me? Well, much more than you might think. See, it's really easy for us to sit here and be tempted to criticize these foolish disciples as ignoramuses who just couldn't understand the greatest teacher who's ever lived. I mean, we're in the fourth and final chapter of Jesus' nonstop teaching here. How could they not understand? Fair point. But let's be really careful now. Because how often, let's be honest, do we fail to understand the impact and the glory and the significance of what it means to have God's Holy Spirit resident within us? That's true at an individual level, and it's also true at a corporate church level many times. We don't have to look far to realize that we live in a day where many churches choose to willingly abuse or, and this is equally as tragic, willingly ignore the Holy Spirit. See, he truly is the disrespected deity, as one commentator has said, a member of the Godhead whom many of us simply do not understand. And so we are tempted to just gloss over his ministry as being unimportant. Don't understand what he does, so why should I bother to to care? Or, worse yet, we impose upon him exactly who we want him to be. And see, neither of those approaches is appropriate. In fact, both of those approaches, to abuse him and who he is or to ignore him, they're both blasphemous. See, the Holy Spirit of God, the helper, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father and the Son, he is the greatest gift from Christ to you. He is the one who applies the atonement of Christ to you through regeneration. He is the one who opens your eyes to the truth through illumination He is the one who transforms you through sanctification. He is the one who connects you to Christ and makes you one with Him. See, He makes possible everything in your Christian life. If Christ had come to earth and been born in a manger and lived and died and been raised, but there was no work or person of the Holy Spirit, you would have absolutely no capacity or ability to access the work of Christ at all. It's only because of the work of the Spirit in your life that now you have a spiritual life. The atonement was accomplished in Christ and it is now applied to you through the work of the Spirit. And so this is not something that we can just afford to ignore or resent or or forget about. No, this is central to who we are as Christians. And the result now is very profound in our lives. 
You see, there, there is no greater tragedy than a Christian who fails to appreciate and walk by the power of the Spirit that has been granted to them. See, to be a Christian and to not value the work of the Holy Spirit is to be like a, a prisoner who gets set free but then refuses to walk out the door. It's, it's to be like a man who has miraculously regained his, his sight but then just refuses to open his eyes. It's to be like a person who is sick who recovers but then just refuses to get up out of bed. See, in short, a Christ follower who doesn't embrace and pursue a relationship to the Spirit of God is the most tragic species of person imaginable. See, these disciples, they did not understand the empowering work of what the Spirit was going to enable in their life because they had never received the Spirit of God. And so we ought to look at their ignorance with a certain measure of grace. But now let's consider you and I for a moment. We do have this Spirit resident within us. He lives in us now. And so what right or excuse could we possibly have to view Him with indifference or callous disregard? See, Jesus didn't just hold the package out to you. No, He has already installed His Spirit within you. And so you and I, having already received Him, must embrace and rejoice in Him. We must be faithful to walk according to the power of this Spirit, to go out of our way to understand who He is and how He works, because He is the greatest gift of Christ to you. Now that we understand the significance of these things, now we are prepared to lean in for the conclusion and the finale of this chapter. And listen with very careful attention to what Jesus is going to explain to us about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. Because understanding who He is and what He does brings to our awareness the reality that He is a revolutionary kind of gift for our spiritual lives. And that's what I want for us to look at now as we go here into verse 7. What Jesus is offering here in verse 7 is a gift that is unparalleled. Look at what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, far, far from being a disappointment. The arrival of God's Spirit is nothing short of a spiritual revolution. And that's the reason why this verse begins with a sharp word of contrast. The hinge here in this passage between verses 6 through 7 from disappointment to rejoicing, from, from disaster to advantage, is the conjunction right there, nevertheless. And it's a very strong conjunction in the original language. 
something that the translators of the English Standard Version have tried to account for by using the relatively uncommon word nevertheless. They could have just said but, but no, they choose nevertheless, which is not a word that you and I run around using very often. Nevertheless this and nevertheless that. Well, the reason why they chose that word here is to emphasize the fact that there's a really strong corner that Jesus is turning here in the focus of what he's talking about. See, we're supposed to stop now at this point, verse 7, snap out of sorrow mode and focus on the thing that is being offered to us. Because here, right here in this text, Jesus is extending an offer, making a promise, giving a gift of epic proportions, and he wants our attention riveted onto the gift that he is holding in his holy hands. See, three times in this conversation, Jesus has already introduced the helper, the spirit of truth, the agent of God's power in your life. And so far, no one has even stopped and bothered to say a simple thank you, which is shocking, really, given what Jesus has already told us about this helper. Because all night long, Jesus has already been trying to explain to them the revolutionary superiority of what he's offering to them. Let's just review the statements he's already made. Turn with me in your Bible back, probably just a page, to chapter 14, verse 16. Here's what Jesus says first about this spirit. He says there in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What's he talking about there? He is saying to his followers here that there is going to be perpetual, permanent companionship with God through the presence of the Spirit dwelling within you. You will never face another day or trial or hardship alone. You will always have him present with you. That's benefit number one that Jesus has already explained. Skip down with me to verse 26 of chapter 14. Jesus comes back around to reemphasize this gift again. He says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all all that I have said to you. What's the second benefit of this spirit? Well, he's going to make clear the truth of who Jesus is. And he's going to make sure that you've always got the capacity to understand the word of God. And the implication of that then is found there in verse 27. You, because of that ministry, will always have the peace that I am leaving with you. Not only will you not be alone in your day of trial, but you will never be cut off from access to the truth. And so, no matter what storm rages around you, you can always be at peace. This is the function of the Spirit. But Jesus keeps going. In verse 26 of chapter 15, turn the page with me. He brings up the Spirit a third time. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is what the Spirit does. In the face of opposition, He empowers you to testify faithfully, 
to the reality of Jesus Christ from whom you will never again be separated because you have his spirit now resident within you. These are the benefits that make the ministry of the Spirit so great and profound in our lives. And now here, as we come back to the text we've been in this morning, John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus holds forth the offer of the Spirit for a fourth now and final time. But this time, he accompanies it with really a formal, solemn oath where he swears to himself and says, I tell you the truth. See, he is deadly earnest because Jesus knows what these disciples don't. He knows that the Spirit of God inside of them would allow them to never again be alone, just as we are never alone. He knows that they'd always have access to the mind of Christ, just as we now have access to the mind of Christ. He knows that they would always have the peace of Christ no matter what, and so do we. He knows that they would be made one with Him forever through the work of this Spirit, and so too are we. See, these men could not possibly understand the depths of their need, but Jesus does. And so he just tells them flat out, it is to your advantage if I go away. And the word that he uses there for advantage, it's a word that means basically the bottom line is going to be to your profit. He's talking about profit margins here. It is going to be expedient for you. It is going to be better for you. It is going to be in your best interests. It is going to be to your profit margin that I leave you. Now that word is not only interesting because of what it means, but it's also interesting because of how it's already been used in the Gospel of John. And when Jesus pulls it out here and uses it in chapter 16 verse 7, I dare say it would have been very jolting to the disciples in this original context. And the reason for that is because the only other time that this word for advantage is used in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 11, verse 50, where we find it in the mouth of none other than Caiaphas, the high priest, the head of the Jewish state, Jesus' mortal enemy. And here's what Caiaphas has to say using this same word. He says, it is, if you remember, expedient. It is in our best interest to get rid of Jesus and for him to go away. And that word, expedient, of all words, is the word that Jesus chooses to quote here with his disciples there as they're talking. And the great irony of it is that Jesus agrees with Caiaphas. He doesn't agree with his disciples that it'd be better for him to stay. He's agreeing with the corrupt and crooked high priest. And so he says, it is advantageous that I should leave. Now, just imagine that you're one of the disciples at this point. Jesus, how could you possibly be quoting Caiaphas right now as though that were a good idea? How could this possibly be better? How could it possibly be to our advantage if you go? And I love this now because Jesus, in his marvelous kindness, don't miss this now. He gently graciously, patiently, lovingly 
holds forth his gift one more time and nudges it towards these men because what he's offering to them is unlike anything they had ever known. And so he says, look, I tell you the truth. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, and I am, there's nothing you can do to stop it. I, here's his promise, will send him to you. Such a loving, affirmative promise Jesus makes here. Uttered with what has to be the the gentlest, kindest words from the greatest, most generous Savior. I mean, gone is the disappointed tone of rebuke from verse 5. And now, now there's only love. There's only grace. There's only tender, total mercy on display. As his tone is comparable to this. My dear men, you need me to leave. For if I don't, the Spirit won't. He can't come. And it's His presence in you that you need most. And that is the gift that Jesus is offering here. And here's the reason why. Because the presence of God in you is more powerful than God near you. Let me show you how that's true. We'll rewind the tape and just review the Gospel of John here very briefly. As we've been working our way through this gospel, how many miracles, I ask you, have we seen Jesus do? If you survey the works of Jesus, those things that these people had witnessed with their very own eyes, you'll find seven works specifically that John strategically chooses to highlight for us. Seven acts, seven miracles that demonstrate to us the power of Christ over creation as he calms a storm, the power of Christ to create as he turns water into wine and and turns loaves and fishes into a meal for a multitude, as he raises Lazarus from the dead for crying out loud. And yet, what was the response of the people who were there with him in the flesh to all of these works? It was to reject him and turn their faces from him, saying, that's not what we're after. You say, well, okay, they rejected his works. What about, what about his words? Well, you go back and survey the Gospel of John, and, and seven times again you'll find Jesus making these great I am statements as he powerfully paints a masterpiece that shows us the Father, explaining him to us in brilliant color and vivid detail. And what was the result of all of these now words of Jesus? Well... The people had rejected them just as surely as they rejected his works. Here's the point. Just laying eyes on Christ, even in the flesh, accompanied by all of his works and words, that hadn't changed anything in and of itself, in any of them. You see, a person could see all seven signs with their own eyes and hear all seven I am statements with their own ears, but still walk out and stab the Lord of glory in the back. Just ask Judas who did that just moments prior to these words being uttered. 
See, proximity to Christ is no substitute for knowing and experiencing the work of Christ's Spirit. It was only as the Spirit of Christ did His work that faith in Christ became possible. And now that the Spirit, who had already made all the difference in granting faith to the disciples, that Spirit, the one who is so powerful, the only one who can affect any kind of change at all, Jesus says, He is going to come and take up His residence inside of you. And that is the substance of His gift now to us. It's not just that we have an awareness of who Jesus is. No, we have the Spirit of Jesus living inside of us, granting power to our spiritual lives so that we would truly be conformed to His nature and be changed, transformed into His image. With Him, you've got the ability to walk with Christ. Without Him, you've got absolutely nothing. And that's why this gift, the one that Jesus is offering here, that's why this is so very important. It's why the Apostle Paul recounts the nature of this gift in a text like Titus 3, 4 through 7. Listen as I read Paul's reflections on the importance of the gift of the Holy Spirit. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness done by us, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, that salvation, that right there, which was accomplished in Christ and applied by His Spirit, that is the greatest gift of God to you. And that's the reason why the coming of the Spirit now into our lives, dwelling within us, was going to be superior advantageous, something stupendous, because when He showed up, revolutionary spiritual power came with Him. And that's the reason why Jesus says here for a fourth and final time, holding out this offer of the Spirit, telling His followers, here is my gift to you, and you need Him. He's going to be the key to everything. See, in order for them to understand, in order for us to understand, Jesus is going to go on here in this chapter to hold up the person of the Holy Spirit and explain Him to us in the rest of this chapter. He's going to explain to us, give us a master class on who the Spirit is and what He does and how He changes everything in our Christian life. I dare say if these disciples, if they could have seen the impact that this gift was going to have in their lives, their sorrow would have been turned into rejoicing, their mourning into gladness, their frowns, so to speak, would have been turned upside down. See, if they could have seen what was coming, they would have known that the gift they most needed is the gift they should have most wanted. Because Jesus going back to the glory of His Father, that's not bad news. That's the best of news. Because if Christ has been restored to glory, 
then that means the glory of heaven has now been cleared hot to take up its residence inside every single last one of us. And friends, that is the gift that is worthy of our great celebration. Because here's what that means now, specifically for you and in you today. It means that there's been a revolutionary power deployed in your life to make you and me, to make us more like the person of Jesus Christ. There's no excuse for us now to be walking in the flesh when we could just as easily be walking by the power of the Spirit. I mean, here's what you've got in your life with the Spirit of God present. You've got access to the fullness of God's power. You've got the ability to open up your Bible, understand it, and apply it. You've got the ability to have an ongoing, permanent relationship to God Himself, for the Spirit has made you one with Christ. You can know the peace of Christ amidst the greatest kind of trial. You can know the hope of heaven in the face of temporal storms. You've got the full strength of God in place of your old weakness. And now now you've got the capacity to obey and keep all the commands of Christ because you love Him. For He lives within you if you've come to Him in faith. See, that's the gift of Christ to you. And it's already been given. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to dissect through this text what that means for you. And my prayer for us as a church is that our Christmas together will be the most exuberant kind of celebration, knowing that the Helper, He has been handed to us by a Christ who took on human flesh looked humanity in the eye and said, I've got something that will be to your advantage. People, should we not now take it, use it, and be eternally grateful for it? I want us to close this morning by looking at exactly what happened on the day when this promise of Jesus to send His Spirit was fulfilled. Acts chapter 2 recounts the day for us. We're told that when the day of Pentecost, just a few weeks later, arrived, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So much so that the apostle Peter, that impetuous Peter, that confused, ear-hacking Peter, proceeds to stand up being filled with the Spirit and belt out a Spirit-empowered sermon that flows from a newly empowered heart as he boldly proclaims to those present the following words. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. For this Jesus, here's how he did that, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore rightly exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has now poured out this, that you yourselves are now hearing and seeing. Now, 
it says, when they heard this, all the men of Israel present were cut to the heart. And they responded by saying to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what are we supposed to do? And here's Peter's answer. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise, it's for you and your children and all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. My friends, you and I, we are those who once were far off. But having been called by God to Himself, the Son has now granted to us this gift of His Spirit, the one in whom in these last days He has been poured out upon us, And so, now, may we be those who are faithful to know Him, to love Him, to give thanks for Him as the gift of Christ to us this Christmas season. Let's close in a word of prayer together. Our Father God, You have done so much on our behalf. You have identified our need We had no capacity to draw near to you, for we were your enemies. You have seen fit to solve for that need. You've sent your Son to pay for our sin. His atonement has been accomplished on our behalf. But then, then you sent us your Spirit to apply that work in our lives, to empower us, to encourage us, to protect us, and to preserve us until we stand in your presence having been made whole. And for this, we do thank you. Our hearts rejoice in him. We thank you for the gift of both your Son and your Spirit who have been made known to us. And now we are your people because of that work forever. And in this, in this we now rejoice and give you thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do stand together with me, and we'll close today by reading a benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in grace.